Hello, and welcome to Co-op Cast, where game designers Peter Gusis and Michael Kelly talk about cooperative board games. Join us each week as we break down one game and have a related design discussion. Hi, I'm Peter, and I'm here with Mike. Hey, 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 welcome, everyone. And we have another special guest for you. This week, it's Liz from Beyond Solitaire. Hey, everybody, Woo! thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Great to have you. And welcome to episode 17 of Co-op Cast. Man, 17 episodes. We are getting close to the big 2-0. Well, you know, if I had planned this better, we would be on episode 18 since this is the first podcast of 2018. I don't think we're going to hold off for episode 19 in 2019, though. That'll be a little <laughs> bit too much of a delay. So, uh, Liz, thanks so much. We're so excited to have you on the show. Can you tell us a bit about what you do with uh, gaming? Uh, yeah, I'm actually primarily a solo gamer. And excitingly, my blog, uh, BeyondSolitaire.net, turns two tomorrow. I can't actually believe it's been this long. All right. Congratulations. That's amazing. Thank you. Was that a New Year's resolution two years ago? I'm going to write a blog. <laughs> no, like I made the blog and I didn't start really writing on it until maybe April of that year. And then I haven't stopped since. So Very cool. So wait, say, say that URL for us one more time slowly, just so all our listeners can go check it out. Absolutely. Check me out at www.beyondsolitaire.net. Fantastic. All right, Liz. Well, uh, today we're going to be discussing Dragonfire, which is, uh, I guess, the new implementation of the Shadowrun Crossfire system, but set in a Dungeons and Dragons world. Uh, Peter, you want to lead in a bit more on what's going on with this game? Well, yeah, it's set in the Forgotten Realms universe, so you guys may have heard of Forgotten Realms before. It is on the Sword Coast, and it has such locations as Moonshea Isles, Baldur's Gate, Neverwinter, and Waterdeep. Some of you board gamers may recognize Waterdeep from another board game. Yeah, it's weird you let off with Moonshea Isles, because, you know, Baldur's Gate was a huge computer game series that I used to play, and... uh... Neverwinter Nights, same thing, and then Moonshade Isles I've never even heard of. <laughs> what, that's not your favorite D&D location? I mean, oh man, I've, I've had so many exciting adventures in the Moonshade Isles. <laughs> uh, have you all played Dungeons & Dragons in the Forgotten Realms setting? Because I've played a few campaigns in that setting, like kind of in this general vicinity. No, you know, actually I haven't. I haven't really gotten to be part of a Dungeons & Dragons campaign since randomly doing one in college. I had a great time. I would absolutely do it again, but I'm primarily a board gamer. Uh, that's great. Me, me too, lately, especially since they always made me be the dungeon master, and that's not <laughs> necessarily my my favorite activity to do. It takes too much prep work. Well, I've killed every role-playing group that I've ever been part of, so I've just decided not to join them anymore <laughs> because I just I fade. It was a betrayal at Baldur's Gate. Ooh, we just played that uh, this weekend, but sorry, don't want to derail <laughs> the cooperative focus of the podcast. <laughs> Very cool. Well, Mike, why don't you, since we've had too much fun here... Why don't you lead us in with the rules explanation for Dragonfire? All right, so let's see if I can kill the fun with boring rules. Uh, so this is a deck builder, um, although not quite in the vein of the, the main kind of types you usually see, the Dominion or Ascension style. So you'll uh, pick an adventure to play, and they have different difficulty ratings that suggest when you should play them, including a basic one that's a dungeon crawl that you can play at different adventure difficulties. And the adventure will have its own specific rules, but generally the game is all about defeating monsters. Sometimes you're protecting somebody, but in the end, uh, every adventure we've played at least involves killing monsters as quickly as you can. And most adventures will require you to play through uh, two to three scenes. And a scene is generally just uh, spawning a bunch of monsters and then killing all those monsters. You get a little rest in between and then you go on to the next scene. And uh, you try to complete all the scenes to complete the adventure, but even if you fail part of the way through, you'll still generally get some experience point gains to bump your characters up for next time. So usually no playthrough is completely wasted, even if you don't win. So to get to the specifics, um, you'll spawn monsters. Usually it's one per character in most of the uh, adventures to start out. And they'll be spread around, uh, so each character will usually have one or two monsters to start. And then uh, at the beginning of each leader's turn, so one player is designated the leader, you draw a dragon fire card. And these are events that mostly hurt you. They have some flavor text and such. 
And uh, as you go through these Dragonfire cards, so as you go through a full set of turns and get back to the leader, they'll go into the discard pile, and the more cards in the discard pile, the worse the effects get as the game goes along, and the monsters also become more powerful. So you can think of the Dragonfire cards as a timer on the game. Then you get to the real meat of the mechanics. You'll have a hand of cards. Your character class determines on what you start with in an adventure, usually between two and four cards in your hand. And uh, you can play as many cards as you like. Other players can play specifically cards that have an assist ability. So not all cards, but many cards have the ability to assist another player on their turn. And the vast majority of cards just deal different kinds of damage or have different damaging effects. And how this works is uh, the monsters will have a column of damage icons going down the right side of their card. Some will be colored based on one of the four colors, which key to the four classes in the game. And uh, the rest will be colorless. You can kind of think of this for those Magic the Gathering uh, players as sort of like mana, where a colorless uh, damage can be dealt by any type of damage, but you need the specific color to uh, deal damage if they have like a red damage icon. And you have to go from top to bottom, generally. So you're slowly hurting these monsters, and once all of a monster's damage icons have been fulfilled by card play, then the monster is defeated and all the players get some gold. So that's mostly what you're doing with playing cards, although some cards do have defensive powers or let you draw cards and that kind of stuff. Uh, After you play as many cards as you like, you take damage from all the encounters facing you, and uh, you have a hit point track, and if you go to zero, you're stunned. If you take damage again, you are unconscious and basically out of the game until that scene is finished. Then you draw cards. It's not like Dominion or Ascension where you draw back up to five cards or whatever each turn. Instead, you draw two cards if you have three or fewer cards in your hand. Then you get a market phase. If you have gold, usually start with some gold, and then uh, you distribute gold whenever a monster is defeated. So you have a offer of six cards in the market. As you buy one, you immediately replace it. And interestingly, uh, different than a lot of deck builders, the cards you buy go straight to your hand, so you could assist with them in another player's turn or be ready to play them on your next turn. And uh, again, you're just fighting monsters, trying to stay alive until you get to a scene, you get a little rest, get a little hit points back, get to buy some stuff, and then usually you spawn some more monsters and continue. If you survive the adventure, you get a big XP bonus and sometimes get some uh, treasure cards that you can also choose to put in your deck for an adventure. If you lose, you'll usually still get some XP. And between adventures, you can basically spend the XP to get these little stickers that are your upgrades and your level ups. And you put them right on your character cards. You've got a sort of minor legacy element here of leveling up. All right. So, Liz, what have your player counts looked like? So, I've played the solo and I've played it with two. Okay. But I have not played the higher range of players. Yeah, and the majority of our plays have also been with two players, so everyone listening, just, you know, little caveat if our opinions seem skewed toward the two-player experience. Maybe try out the game and see how it works for you with four or five. Oh, man, so we're in a new year, but our format is still what it has been. We uh, each have selected five elements of the game that stand out to us. Now, these could be standing out for bad reasons and be a con. They could be standing out for good reasons and be a pro or somewhere in between. But they're the five things about the game that stick out the most to us. And we're going to start with our number fives, which is the least important to us, the thing that is the least key to the game experience, and work up to our number ones. And then we'll finish with our final thoughts on the game before getting to our design discussion. So, uh, Liz, since you're the guest, would you like to talk about your number five for Dragonfire? Absolutely, thanks. Um, So, for my number five, I'm just going to go ahead and get my con out of the way, which is that the intro scenario, the quick rules, are absolutely brutal if you're playing with a low player count. I waltzed in thinking, oh, it's just another board game. I'm going to have a lovely day. I'm going to set up my two characters. It's going to be great. And I just got hammered badly (laughs) and i of course went on to board game geek to see it it turns out that this is a problem that a lot of people experience with the quick start rules and that bothered me not because i lost because that happens all the time frankly but um because i don't think that that is a good introduction to this game especially for people who are planning to play it solo or play with two players i think that the quick start rules are not really representative of the better parts of the game and it's they, they don't scale as well as the game does once you start using the scenes and the dragon fire card instead. Yeah, and that, that was a similar experience to what Peter and I had. We we got crushed by the game our first couple of plays and then started playing the adventures and started planning things better and did much better. All right, uh, so Peter, what would you say your number five is? 
So my number five is that while it's a deck builder and there are cards that are keyed to each of the classes, you are not bound by class restrictions. And this was actually something that got to us at the beginning of the game when we first started playing. I only wanted to draft cards that were particular to my class. And actually, I think that could even be a mistake in some situations. Yes, some cards are better or and some cards are keyed to a class, but a lot of cards aren't. And you are going to do skill checks, which is something we didn't cover. And when you do a skill check, basically you draw the top card off of your deck and you want it to match your class. So in that situation, it might hurt you a little bit. But for the most part, you really want to get the best card for you and not be bound by your class specifically. Although a lot of times I do find that getting cards that go to your class are the best card, but it's still going to be situational and you aren't forced down a particular path. So that for me is mostly a pro that you have a lot of flexibility in which direction you can go, even though it's kind of pushing you in one direction just because, hey, I'm green. This card is green. I should probably get that. All right, Mike, what is your number five? So my number five is actually not really gameplay related, uh, but it is a pro for me. Going to start off positively. I like the design and the artwork for the game. I'm a fan of a lot of the like recent spat of D&D-based games, and I've noticed that they all seem to use a fairly similar graphic design. I, I, I'm guessing that's probably something that Wizards of the Coast like forces on the game companies, because not all of these are published by Wizards, but I assume they have some sort of like brand identity they want to keep consistent. But yeah, I think the artwork for the characters here is great. The artwork for the monsters is really evocative and fun. I find everything really easy to read, really easy to locate. I like the icons. Like every, The iconography is really distinctive, and I can tell things apart. Even if I was colorblind, I think it would still be really clear which icon is which for the combat. So in general, I just really uh, appreciate how the game looks. Uh, even the box uh, cover art is beautiful. So they've really uh, brought the D&D theme into play here uh, with the artwork and the components. Yeah, this was my only honorable mention, is I do think that the artwork is amazing in the game. And not only that, I think you're right about the graphic design. I think it's consistent and easy to understand. Once you understand one card, you really understand most of how the rest of the cards work. So I I do think it's nice and streamlined that way. The cards feel great, too. Like, I'm probably going to sleeve them because they're clips. (laughs) Yeah. But just the overall aesthetic of the game is, is really pleasing to me. Yeah, no, I agree. Oh, and but, uh, Liz mentioned clips. Just for those who haven't seen the game, uh, you mark the monsters' damage levels with these little uh, clips that kind of slide down the cards. And if you don't want to, what we've done in several occasions is just put them on top of the cards because you just need to really cover up the icons that you've already damaged. So you don't have to slide the the clip onto the card if you don't want. If you're worried about damaging your cards, but we've slid them on, and I haven't noticed anywhere so far. Yeah, no, me either. All right, Liz, how about your number four? What you got? All right, for number four, I'm going to say my number four noble thing is that the game forces you to be efficient. It forces a fast game because of the dragon fire cards. So Mm. sometimes in the moment, I don't appreciate this, but overall, I'm going to say it's a pro because I like games that don't drag on. I like games that kind of force me to get moving. And in Dragonfire, if you take too long to end a scene to get rid of the encounters that are in front of you, the next set of encounters is just going to be worse than the one that you have now. So there's definitely an incentive to push through, play those cards, do that damage, and get moving. And that's something I really like. Yeah, I don't think any of our plays for a full adventure have taken more than, I don't know, 30 or 45 minutes. So I definitely appreciate the fast pace of the game, too. Yeah, and kind of going along with that is my number four The game forces you to keep going, but as Mike was saying, you don't draw up to a full hand of five cards every time. You're only drawing two at the end of each turn, so there are some situations where you can get stuck, and that's mine, which is mostly a con. There are definitely situations where if you haven't planned well, you're going to have turns that are not going to be very good. If you run out your whole hand of cards, and you don't have a lot for the next round, and you didn't kill a monster, that's the other thing that'll get you stuck. If you're not killing monsters constantly in this game then you're not going to be getting gold, so you can't buy cards. One of the best ways you can progress in this game is you kill a monster, you buy a card that will help you kill the next monster. And that's why I was saying earlier, it doesn't have to be bound to your color. You just want something that's going to work on the next encounter that you're going to face. And so there are times, though, that you will get yourself stuck. Mm -hmm. And if you don't keep that 
gold cycle flowing, then you can really get behind and it is not fun to get out of. In fact, I think it's maybe impossible to get out of once you get in that death spiral. If you have no cards and no money, you're not really going to have a a great next turn and that's just going to put you behind the eight ball. So my number four kind of goes along with my number five, but counters it a bit. So number five, I love the artwork and the design, but number four, there's a con for me. I don't think the theme is done well here. And, I mean, it's kind of the type of game it is, but still, um, you know, I'm a big Dungeons & Dragons fan, both the RPG and other games based on the system. I don't feel like combat feels like combat. I don't know why I need these specific icons to defeat the specific monster. You know, in D&D, you can kill a guy with magic or swords, but here you literally can't defeat a guy if you don't have that green card. And the cards just feel like icons to me most of the time. The better ones do feel more thematic, like a fireball feels a bit like a fireball, and... Like, the shield bash thing feels good, too. But a lot of the cards don't have much theme to them. The adventures are decent, but also don't always have a great theme. Although, a few of the ones we played, like the protection mission, uh, those are pretty fun. The other big thing is... I know this has to be a deck builder, so I need to be able to buy whatever cards I want. And Peter said he liked that, that you could kind of, like, branch out and get different things. But it does feel very weird when I'm a fighter and I'm, like, casting magic missiles and doing all these very unfighter-like things. Again, just as someone coming from D&D, this is not a great implementation of, like, the D&D theme. It feels like a lot of mechanics that have been sort of forced into D&D, at least for me. Well, I think I'm going to counter that in a minute. But um, for now, Liz, did you have anything to say about that or do you want to get on to your number three? Well, actually, I was—I think that that's fair. Um, one of the things that didn't make my top five list but made it to my notes as I was writing this was low mechanic slash theme integration. Yeah. And I clearly felt that, yeah, I mean, there are definitely times in combat where it's like, wait, why am I waiting for this green card? Good lord, like, can I please draw a green card? Like, <laughs> why do I even have a green card? I'm a fighter. Right. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I still enjoy the game, but yeah, those little breaks in my sort of meditative game state, they do matter to me. Yeah, and, and it's a number four for me. It's not breaking the game for me or anything. And, and it's sort of funny in the rule book. They have these little uh, these little boxes that are like, "Hey, here's what this is supposed to mean in the theme." You're you're sneaking by the troll, and I'm like, "Oh, come on, give me a break." But it was very much like, "Oh, you can use your imagination to pretend that by yeah. doing damage to this, um, I don't know, guard, you were actually distracting her by upsetting the delivery cart or something." Yeah. Like that. Yeah, it's like we we couldn't figure out a more thematic way to actually integrate the mechanics, so you do the work for us. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so for nine, my number three, I put that there is a sense of progress with a promise of more progress. Even though playing these adventures over and over, especially because you only get five experience each time, no matter what adventure it is, and yeah. it seems a little <laughs> bit like a grind. I actually really enjoy that. I like the stickers. I like choosing tracks for my characters. And I liked that the rulebook was telling me that, oh, you know, these are the rules for getting through the beginning of level five, but the, this, this game's going to change. There's going to be more levels. And I, of course, am hearing that and thinking, oh, more levels? What's it going to be like when I'm at level 10? What's it going to be like when I'm at... And like, who knows how far this will really go. But to me, that sense of promise is very exciting. However, on the flip side of that, I get very frustrated because... Because they want to maintain that deck building nature of the game, I have to give up all the sweet cards I bought in a in a round and then go back to the plain equipment pack that I started with <laughs> at the last adventure. And that can be really, really frustrating. Yeah. Yeah, I think all of our adventurers have major amnesia and we're like, I don't remember how to cast that spell anymore. I gotta learn it all over again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you definitely get that sense. So my number three actually goes right along with what you were saying. I actually kind of cheated here and added two in one. I said, room for cool expansion slash differentiation. So I put two things in here. Number one was the character leveling and progression, like you said. There's definitely room to add as many levels and as many different kind of cards as you want. Although, like you said, I did feel like it was grinding after a while. So you need you get five permission. You need to get ten to get to level two. So I basically need to do at least two level one missions to get to level two. Well, there's only two in the box, only one in the campaign. So really, it's going to take me a while before I can even get to level two. So I have to play at least level one twice. Then I go on to level two, and there are you know, three or four missions at level two in there. Now I'm playing all those so I can get like 60 experience so I can go on to level three. So it just feels like you're going to be playing the same mission 
missions over and over and you're grinding up just to get experience. And at a point, we're like, well, what does it matter if we win or lose? If we get through level two, we're going to get two experience. Okay, now we can start over again and keep going and keep going. So there wasn't really penalties for losing and there wasn't really benefits for winning. So it really did start to feel like a grind. But on the other side, I'm getting back to kind of what Mike said. There are a lot of things they can do with the monsters as well. So and I like how they've really left themselves open. In design, we call this leaving yourself enough dials to turn. And there are a lot of dials to turn in this game, and they do it really nice. And a lot of it is very smooth. They have tokens that you can place on enemies to give them extra damage. You can place tokens on the side, and they can represent little you know, creatures that aren't necessarily represented by cards. So there are a lot of ways that you can not only change what the players are doing, but also change how the enemies act on every mission. And I liked how they left that open. Although again, my con for that is right now to level up feels like a grind sometimes. Yeah. And I'll come back to that same point a little later on my list, but my number three was another pro. I do like the, we've talked about puzzles on this podcast before and how games can set up like intriguing puzzles And I think uh, this game's combat and card play can become very fun and interesting and exciting, um, both in how other players help you. Now, you won't have uh, almost any unless you're playing two-player assist cards at the beginning, but you'll quickly buy them because they're generally very strong. And as you get more advanced cards, as you have more cards in your hand, as you have more uh, players to help you, I think this game can really have a lot of fun kind of puzzly combat to figure out. Again, the theme isn't doing it for me, but I do enjoy figuring out the best way to defeat this monster as quickly as possible. And I'll say for me, probably the most fun turns in the game are when we start the second or third scene, because usually we've built up a pretty good hand by then on purpose to be ready for that. And we have some really awesome like combos where we can kill like two monsters right off the bat if we've planned well. So I do enjoy that part of the game. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I guess I said I was going to counter you with my number three point. I'm not countering your your theme negative, but you guys know me from listening long enough now. Mechanics are so important to me, and I really think it's neat how they have these different cards being so simple with just a one symbol on a lot of cards saying how much damage you're doing. I really like the openness of that system. So I guess I'm not really countering your the theme and mechanics don't go together more than I'm saying. I think the mechanics are pretty cool, and I think they present a cool puzzle. I just have one other comment about the theme, though, which I feel like every time I read Board Game Geek or Facebook group, people are like, why is this another fantasy game? I'm so tired of people slapping a fantasy theme on things. I'm the reason that people do that. If you put a fantasy (laughs) theme on something, I will probably buy it. And, you know, I actually never played Shadowrun Crossfire. It just didn't quite attract me the way that the Dragonfire theme did. So I probably would never pick this game up if you didn't slap a dragon on it, call it Dragonfire instead. I will agree with you there. Yeah, and then I go sort of the other way. I'm, I'm a I'm an old Shadowrun geek from back in the day, so I was kind of more intrigued by the Crossfire theme. And then same thing for like Descent versus Imperial Assault. I'd much rather play Star Wars than another dungeon crawl. So I, I love dungeon crawls. Don't get me wrong, but I'm definitely a big fan of sci-fi and like dystopian and that kind of stuff. Also, just to finish that thought, I think it's funny that. People that are complaining about the dungeon crawl theme probably never liked the dungeon crawl theme to begin with. These are probably Euro players that would rather play a game about a city name rather or a game about farming. (laughs) And don't get me wrong, I love those games as well. A game about a city name with a scary European guy on the cover. (laughs) Exactly. So, I mean, I think people complaining about dungeon crawls are not people who are playing dungeon crawls, right? I I have a feeling because... You know, Sword and Sorcery came out, Gloomhaven came out last year, and I liked playing all of those, and I'm not complaining about the fact that they're fantasy. It puts you in a familiar place, a familiar setting. feels comfortable getting back in there. Definitely. All right, Liz, what was your number two? Getting close to the top of our list. All right, so actually riffing off of the idea of being in a comfortable setting, I was I was very interested in the fact that Dragonfire is a deck builder that doesn't feel like a deck builder at all. So deck building is probably my favorite mechanic. If it's a deck builder, I'll try it. But unlike most deck builders where you know you trash your whole hand and then draw another full hand, Dragonfire really changes the way that you think about the cards. You're not hoping that you're going to draw something good later. You're trying to buy something good for right now. You're trying to hold on to a card for right now. And so that forcing you to plan for the immediate future instead of trying to set up something bigger really changes the feel of the game and for me actually it makes it more immediate in a lot of ways that hmm. sometimes I get frustrated by it because I'm used to a more traditional deck builder but other times I really enjoy it because it's taking me out of my comfort zone a little bit and 
pushing what a deck builder is to me. Well, this is the first time I think I've ever been simpatico with a guest, but my number two is this is not a traditional deck builder. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, look at that. Word for word right on my sheet. So I'm going to take a little bit different approach to that. What I mean by that is you're not going through your deck 20 times in this game. You might go through your deck two or three times in this game. If you buy a card, you're not buying it for the next time you go through your deck. You're buying that card to use right now. And so that's why I was saying earlier, if you get in a hole where you're not getting gold in, if you fail to kill an enemy, you're going to fail to kill the next enemy because you're just not keeping those cards coming in your hand. You're only drawing two cards a turn. So you're not going to get through that many turns in the game. As Liz was saying earlier, it's a fairly quick to play game. So it's really not the kind of game I doubt you'll get through your deck three times, which means you'll probably only get to play those cards you get once or twice in the whole entire game. All right, Mike, let me guess what your number two is. Yeah, so I'm coming back to what Peter and Liz were talking about in number three. I'll just add some new things. I think I'm a bit more negative on this overall, which is why it was lower on the list for me. But yeah, I find the slow leveling and the grind feel to be a major negative for me. And this is something I never played Shadowrun Crossfire, but I heard the exact same thing there, that you would be playing the same scenario over and over and over again to grind your character up to a higher level. And it seems like they just doubled down on that instead of trying to sort of address that complaint. Uh, We were saying, you know, the best you can get from a scenario is five experience. That's without uh, adding in these little challenges, which are fun that you can uh, take on optionally. But that's if you beat the scenario. A lot of times you won't beat the scenario, and then you're getting like maybe one or two or three experience. And yes, there are skills you can buy for like 10 experience, but they're super weak in my experience. Like you start with an extra gold or two at the beginning of the game, and that's it. Uh, From looking through the skill sheets, it's not until you get into like the 40s and the 50s and the 60s that you really get skills that appreciably change the way you're playing on a turn-by-turn basis. So, you know, 50 to 60 experience, we're talking about 10 to, you know, 12 successful missions in a row to get a skill that really changes the way the game plays on a turn-to-turn basis. And that, for me, feels like a bit too much. I feel like everything just goes too slowly. On top of that, I know Liz liked the stickers, and hey, I like them too, but it does seem weird here to have a single legacy element in a game that is not in any other way legacy. Like, the item cards can be used again and again by different characters. So it it just felt off to me. Like, why couldn't we have had some other, like, cardboard counters or something way of marking these upgrades that isn't uh, forcing me to take these stickers? Don't get me wrong, I like applying the stickers, but, you know, I... As we discussed with Pandemic Legacy Season 2, I want the legacy choices to have a like real good reason behind them, and I don't see any need for these to be a legacy element here. So, speaking of one other legacy element that is in this game, I noticed that it said several times in the rulebook that the character screens are laminated, and they encourage yeah. you to write on them with an erasable marker. They yeah. don't feel laminated to me. <laughs> no, they don't. I'm unconvinced. <laughs> So I think that pretty much what you write on that card is not coming back off. Yeah, I was like, I'm not going to write my experience on this card, man. Give me a break. But there's clearly space on the card to write more stuff, too. Like, on the you know, on the back, there's several, like, blank lines for you to put stuff on here. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious about... I'm trying to trust that the fact there's more content coming is part of the reasoning behind this. Sure. We'll see. Yeah, unless you just want to roleplay it up and, like, write your character's backstory on there. Feel free to do any of that, you know? It just feels like a little character sheet. Well, and maybe that would have been a better answer, right? Maybe they could have just given us paper character sheets where we could have written in our stats and written in what level ups we chose to take and just have a table of the level ups. Mm-hmm. Yeah, although, I mean, again, the art is a major thing that's getting me into what theme there is. And if I had a paper sheet with nothing like depicting my character at all, I think that would be a, a downgrade in a way. Okay, touche. Well, then there is a reason for the legacy element. <laughs> well, I wouldn't say that. There's a reason for a character sheet. <laughs> All right. Anyway, uh, Liz, hit us with your number one. All right. So my number one, I'm going to say it's a pro. What I think was the most interesting about Dragonfire is that it truly forces you to be cooperative. The cards that you are getting at the end of your turn during your buy phase are, you know, you're going to be looking for things like assists. You're going to be looking for cards that are going to actively help your teammates deal with the encounters in front of them, not just the monster in front of you. And the fact that you have to think so hard about what other people are facing, especially your wizard, because, of course, they're the squishiest character, 
uh, for me, that was really mind-bending in terms of, like, a lot of times I think we play games, we look out for ourselves. Or, like, even when you're playing solo and you're controlling multiple characters, like, maybe you have a one that you favor a little bit, and the other one is kind of playing a help character to the one that you're really, really concentrating on, that's not possible in Dragonfire. You have to actually think about the fate of the team. Yeah, and I meant to add that to my number three. Not just the tactical combat is cool, but it is very cooperative. And the fact that, barring locations, you can attack anybody's monster is really fun. And, you're yeah, you do buy cards, like, specifically to take out that guy that is killing your friend. So I think they did a great job with that in the game. Yeah, I definitely think the number one pro for this game is that tactical combat, the puzzle you're trying to solve. How do we kill this monster so we don't get in that death battle? But that isn't my number one. My number one is the difficulty of the encounters is really swingy. Mm -hmm. Like, really, really swingy. You could get, I got a monster today that had like five damage to kill it. And then I got another place that had five was just one of the spots to kill it, right? And you needed to do a total of like 10 or 12 damage to this creature location. And some locations are like bringing out monsters every turn and things like that. I mean, it's just a really wide range of stuff you can get. And you can go through the game for a while and it could seem really easy. And then you could go through some parts where it's just feels almost impossible to kill something. And then when you do kill it on some of these creatures, you flip over a skill check for it, which means you're looking for its color, and it could spawn another creature right after you kill it. It's like, well, wait a minute. You know, how is that balanced with this guy that's, like, super easy to kill over here? So... I do think in cooperative games, it's important to have that variety of character difficulty. I just think they took it really far in this game. There's some that are really, really easy, and there's some that are just really, really hard. And that's really going to change how every game goes. For me, that's a con because it was frustrating. I felt like I was doing really well sometimes, and then all of a sudden you just get smacked in the face. And so for me, that was more frustrating than it was fun and exciting and surprising. Yes, I don't want to pile on too much, but my number one is basically the same as yours, uh, Peter. Maybe there's a little bit of groupthink because we were playing mostly together with this game. But I found uh, a lot of things in the game to be unbalanced. And not just the monsters, which are majorly unbalanced. And the, the balancer is supposed to be how much gold they give you when they're defeated. But there are many of the difficulty one monsters that are much, much harder than the difficulty two monsters. And that just seemed a little off, at least for me. But beyond the monsters, uh, the adventures don't feel balanced. This one where you're guarding a gate was much, much harder than any of the other ones, at least for two players, because they don't really have any mechanic that balances it for two. You're adding two monsters to the gate every turn, and for four players, that's half as many per player than for two players. So there's a lot of like sort of interesting choices like that. I like games that have variety and difficulty. I, I don't necessarily mind like playing Talisman and facing a dragon one turn or playing, you know, Dungeon Quest and falling into a pit my second turn. I, I accept that. But for some reason here, like it's it's also a question of the buildup. Like some games you'll just start with you can start with a location that does two damage that spawns an additional monster that does another two damage, and suddenly you're taking half your hit points in a single turn of attacks. And it's very tough at the beginning of the game to defeat monsters quickly, so it can kind of, like, kill you right off the bat. I wouldn't mind if the variety in difficulty was so swingy if it kind of waited until near the end of the game to hit you with that, but sometimes you're just destroyed immediately, and I don't find that super satisfying here. I don't think that's an unfair assessment. I mean, I noticed some of the same swinginess. I think... I play a lot of games like things, you know, one-deck dungeon, where, you know, you're chucking dice, and maybe it works out, maybe it doesn't. Sure. Yeah, I feel like this is a common complaint in games, and I can definitely see why it's irritating. I think maybe especially in Dragonfire, because it feels like there's a little bit less that you can do about it, because your card draw is so low. Yeah. And, you know, like you guys were saying before, if you can't get enough money to buy another card, you know, you're just stuck. Yeah, and and I I love one-deck dungeon, and I don't know, there's also a difference in, I think, dice swinginess versus... uh, like, the, the entire, like, the, the cards themselves are the swingy factor. I don't know. We've had some fantastic games with it, but we've also had some that just have felt super unsatisfying. Like, we were just kicked to the curb through no choice or option of our own, you know? Yeah. And some games feel like, oh, man, we just lost. That was great. Let's bring it back. This one, to me, felt more frustrating. And I think part of it is not cards versus dice and it might be part of it but I think it's the tactical nature of the game you're cooperating so much and you're working so much to get this stuff done and then one flip of a card 
brings out a whole new monster after you did all this work to defeat this monster, and now you're in the same situation you just were or in a worse situation. So for me, I guess that's the the hard part about the luck in this game is it feels like a tactical game. It feels like it wants to be a tactical game, and then it throws something at you that's like just way more difficult than you can deal with. Usually, I guess, unless you get some level ups, maybe that'll help you. But then you're just, like we were talking about earlier, then you're just grinding through to get better and better stuff. And, you know, you have to do this over and over again. Just to jump in, that's something else I wanted to mention in the balance thing. I'm sure it's better with the later level ups, but your character technically levels when you've spent 10 experience. And the 10 experience cards have such a small effect on the strength of your character. Like it's, I think the one I got, which I thought was one of the better ones, was a free card at the beginning of the game. So I have four cards in my hand instead of three to start the game. But they say that you are level 2 once you get 10 experience, and they say you shouldn't play the level 1 encounters anymore because they'll be too easy. Hey, you got to try the level 2 adventures now. And it's really just weird to me. I was like, my character is not even slightly stronger. I have a single card more at the beginning of the game. Why do you think I'm ready to try a harder version of your game? So it it does seem a little weird. I was like, what are you thinking is happening here when you level up? Because it's not happening in my experience the way you think it is. Well, and the character balance was a little weird too. We noticed some characters like had more life, had more money, had a cool special ability that when they get stunned, they don't have to discard their cards. Oh, and you're negative for that? You have one more basic card in your starting deck. I was like, okay, yeah, I'll take that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so just, you know, if, if you're a person uh, like me, because I think this bothered me the most probably out of the three of us, who, uh, well, I'm, I'm getting into final thoughts. I should probably step. Go right into your final thoughts, Mike. We're going to end with Liz because we want to end on a positive note here. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll go out of order. So for me, this is a, a fun game, but I would definitely say try before you buy for me, at least. It did not excite me nearly as much as some of the other cooperative deck builders we've talked about, like Legendary Encounters or I, I would say uh, Aeon's End is still my top probably for that sort of subgenre. I don't think this comes near to that. I think if you want like campaign style play and leveling that is engaging, I think you should go play an actual dungeon crawler. I don't think this is going to really scratch that itch for you. And if you're kind of like me and want a decent amount of balance and want to feel like your tactical choices are really winning or losing the game for you, I think this one could also be, you know, potentially a disappointment for you. So definitely try it out first, at least from my perspective. Yeah, and I'm not going to pile on too much more. The swinginess was a little too much for me as well. The other frustrating part is because of the legacy elements of the game, it's going to be really hard if I wanted to trade this away or get rid of it because I wasn't enjoying it to do so because now I have some cards that are stickered up and written on. So that would obviously detract people from wanting to pick up my copy of the game. I would say try before you buy. Like Mike said, just don't sticker up your stuff until you know whether you like it. (laughs) Yeah. See, that's how they get you. That's how they get you with the legacy. (laughs) (laughs) But I do think there are things to like here. The quick playtime, the tactical nature of it. I would compare the tactical nature, not in the same way, but to a game like Spirit Island, which was one of our top games from last year, which is a very tactical game as well. Well, this one you're playing in 30 to 45 minutes, which I think is a huge pro on its side. But for me, the swinginess just brought it down enough to the point where it wasn't a game that's going to stay in my collection. So, Liz, bring us up. Yeah, so send us some sunshine, Liz. <laughs> I actually do feel a little bit more positive about the game than y'all do. I completely agree that it's swingy and that it can be punishing in ways that feel unfair, but I just can't quit playing it. Maybe I'm going <laughs> to or something. <laughs> but um, I, I'm also curious about where the game is going to go. Yeah. I think that it has potential to open up in ways that improve the things that are annoying us now and that add elements to the game that are helpful at a future time, I have hope for it. I really get a kick out of trying to make my cards work to their maximum ability. And that's something that, you know, I'll finish a game of this something. No, I know I can get it this time and start it back over. Go, Especially because the, the playthrough is so, so quick. Yeah. I can get a lot of games in in quick succession and get a little bit smarter at it each time. So like still sometimes a horrible monster will come out and, you know, whack me in the face and that's just how <laughs> But, um, I really like the puzzly nature of it, and I'm willing to give it a little bit more time before deciding against. Nice. All right, well, that's going to bring us right into our design discussion. Our design discussion this week is on difficulty. So, Liz, since you were just talking about it, what is it that you like about 
hard co-ops? And what are maybe some negatives of a game being hard? I think that there's two kinds of hard. And that's something that we've been touching on in this discussion. There's hard, I think I can do something about it. And there's hard, I don't think there's anything I can do about it, I quit. And I think that games have to strike the right balance between being challenging, but being challenging in a way where you feel like you actually have some agency in the game. Because if you don't have agency, then what's the point? Also, of course, you know, there's also a time and a place for hard games. You know, every time I play a video game, I don't want to play Dark Souls every time. (laughs) You know, rage quitting. (laughs) So there's also a time and a place for hard games, right? Sometimes you want to do something that's a little brain burning. Sometimes you want to do something that's just kind of chill. Something that Legacy of Dragon Hold, it has a place in my life because it's so chill as a game. Nice. Yeah, I'm excited to try that one. Um, I'll kind of jump in. I agree with Liz that there are places for different games, although I would recommend to game designers that you edge on the easier side and then uh, have dials to make the game harder. Mm-hmm. People play a game once, twice, and then it sits on their shelf or it's out of their collection. You want that first experience to feel good. What I'll say is uh, I think the golden kind of goal of cooperative games in terms of difficulty, at least for me, is uh, I want to lose in the last turn and see how I could have won if I had played a little better. If you can achieve that, you've got me hooked for probably 10, 20, 30 plays of your game. Now, that's so hard to do because gamers are different, groups are different, and if your game actually has a lot of tactics and strategies, some groups might do better than others, and that's when, again, you need options and like ways to vary up the difficulty. But yeah, I don't like games kind of like uh, Dragonfire was for us sometimes. I don't like uh, cooperative games where the difficulty comes too much right up in front i think it's generally better if it's a ramp up even if it's a ramp up to me losing halfway through the game that's still better than me losing like feeling like i already have no chance on the second turn yeah and as far as hard games go i think for me hard games are good for people who want to challenge but i do think what mike said is right where you don't want people to get frustrated People don't play games five or six times anymore. They play them once or twice. You're better off starting at a little bit lower level of difficulty if you can and give people a way to dial up the difficulty. Because one thing we learned from Salvation Road is if you put a hard game in front of people, (laughs) they are not going to take the easy options. We put people in medium level to begin the game, what we thought was medium level. Well, when it got in front of gamers, when we weren't at the table, that medium level became ultra hard. And people got frustrated because they didn't see a way out of it, like Mike was saying. Now, if they had played five or six games of it, then they would start learning tricks. Oh, if I do this, I'm going to be more successful. The problem when you make a game too hard is people won't get to that fifth or sixth game because they get frustrated after two or three games. We put the easier difficulty settings in there. People don't like to dial down the difficulty. Mm -hmm. They want basic difficulty to be like, Okay, let me learn this game on this difficulty. Actually, and I actually mentioned this at the beginning of our conversation, right? I think that's where Dragonfire actually misses a really big opportunity. Yeah. Because they had a swing and a miss in the tutorial. And I think that having a good tutorial, an easy first little trot out of the gate, is really important for bringing you back. Because the other thing is, life's hard enough. I like to feel powerful <laughs> and in control in my games, if that makes sense. You know, if you're playing a wizard, you want to feel like you can really sling spells and that set things on fire. Or, you know, if you're a rogue, you want to feel like you could put an arrow through someone's eye. Absolutely. And not, like, you know, have it clatter against the wall, like, five feet away from them. Yeah. And having those early phases, is, it's important. Yeah. So, Liz, on that note, what do you think are the pros and cons to making a game easier to start with? Yeah, the, the hardest thing to comment on for this is that things that I think are easy. I mean, I'm a teacher. Mike, you understand this. Things that you think are easy, you will be shocked at what other people think is difficult that you thought was really simple, if that makes sense. Oh, my gosh, yes. It's, it's so hard to gauge what is really easy. Definitely. But I think that if you're winning too much of the time, it stops feeling like a challenge. It has to feel like you you have to reach for that goal. There has to be that little stretch in your mind, in your game, that makes it feel like you had a hard-fought battle that you won so you can enjoy your victory. It's it's not fun to beat someone that it was already a foregone conclusion that they lost. Yep. So you have to find that right tension. Like It has to be uncertain whether you're going to win. But it's the uncertainty, right? It can't be certain that you're going to win. It can't be certain that you're going to lose. It has to be somewhere in the middle or else it's not fun. Absolutely. So, Mike, what are your thoughts on, you know, easier games? 
I think it also depends on the game. For a game that is very thematic, I think as long as you have a good experience, it's not too big of a deal to have the game be easier because people are playing to go see what there is to see. Like, I'll use uh, uh, Arkham Horror LCG. You can't really die in that game except through extraordinary circumstances. You're generally going to get through basically the entire campaign if you keep on playing. Now, you might not get to the best results. You still have, like, a replayability aspect there. But in a way, that's easy because you don't have to, like, replay scenarios or your characters and just straight-up die. So you still get to have that experience. Uh, Seventh Continent, which I've been playing a lot solo, is another one. It's a very tough game. It's super hard to actually beat the curses. But you have a big enough health deck to start out that you're going to get to see stuff. You're going to get to do stuff. Like, things are going to happen. You're not just going to, like, walk around and die right away. So I think easiness does allow that. Now, on the con side, if your game is based on players seeing things and experiencing things, that's one of the main, like, kind of draws to your game. Making it too easy can be a negative because they might too quickly get through the content and might feel like there's not enough game there for their dollar. So I'll use uh, Mansions of Madness 2nd Edition for this. I would say that there they did it pretty well. The scenarios are pretty hard. But if I would always get to the end of those scenarios when there's only like three scenarios in the game to start out or three or four and they don't have that much like difference when you play them again, that would be a negative. I think that's a game where you want to edge on the harder side because there's not a ton of variety in the story you're telling So if I'm going to see the entire story in a very short amount of time because I'm rushing through the game, that's really a bad thing. So based on, like, if your game is highly thematic and there's, like, stuff people are going to see, like if you have an encounter deck of 60, like 60 encounter cards, and it's really easy to survive in the game and see 50 of those 60, that's going to lower the replayability for people. So depending on, like, kind of the thematic discovery aspect of your game, maybe shy away from making it too easy so people have to play more to actually discover everything there is to see. Yeah, and I'm going to go with Mike on the pros there, which are if you've got content you want people to see, like games like even Gloomhaven, I don't want to play through those scenarios again. So I want to beat them the first time through, but I do want it to be a challenge, and I want the, the tactical combat there I think is very tactical, but there are 99 scenarios, right? I'm not going to run out of content anytime soon. So I do want to make sure that I'm pretty regularly getting through it, but we also want to feel challenged at the end. I think the thing you worry about if a game doesn't provide enough challenge for you is that you don't feel like your choices are important. Hmm. And that's key for a player. Anybody who's playing game and wants to have fun wants to feel like they're making decisions that matter. And if you're too easily beating the game or if your mechanisms are even too simple where players don't have a lot of choice in the game, I think that could come up on a negative side as well. So if your game is easy because you're not making a lot of choices throughout it, then I think that is a huge con to your game and you really need to add a little bit more challenge in the way of player choices. I think the way games are structured now also offers a lot of leeway for that, though. I mean, think about playing a campaign, playing a legacy game. There's actually room in those games for a beginning game that is easy headed towards an end game that is face-meltingly <laughs> difficult. Um, Absolutely. So, I mean, I've, I haven't played Charterstone yet. It's on my to-do list. But people are saying that that first game is almost ridiculously simple. Um, and I'm not totally sure that that's a bad thing, depending on who you're starting to play with and depending on where the game goes. And also on my two playlists is Mechs and Minions, which I hear has a fantastic tutorial, which is not at all surprising because it comes from a video game designer. And, you know, you think about a Mario game where the first level is really simple, like almost ridiculously easy. And then you find hidden depths as you continue to go. So I think that games that have campaigns that have a more legacy structure should be maximizing that opportunity to start at an accessible level and help people ramp up as the games go by. Yeah, I think that's a great point and bringing up kind of like the video game aspect of it. You look at Mechs versus Minion, look at Harry Potter Hogwarts Battle. These games just sort of have programmed like increased challenge as you go through, which like you said, Liz, is just like a video game. And video games have really mastered this. The idea of like a tutorial and then very simple things and they slowly ramp you up. I'm thinking of like, you know, Warcraft and Starcraft. Playing the campaign basically trains you in a way to actually take on the like real online matches in that game, you know, and 
if your game works for that, I mean, if you're like a Euro, it might be a little tougher. Although Charterstone is clearly making it work. But yeah, if you can find a way to kind of program in elements that get added, increase your choices, I think you're absolutely right, Liz. Even if a game is super easy the first time you play, if you see there's a lot more in the box and I know new stuff is coming, I'm going to play it anyway just to see that other stuff, even if it didn't really challenge me and I didn't really feel like my choices were super important at first. Now, you got to deliver on that. You can't have the game continue to be super easy every time you play it as stuff gets added. But uh, yeah, that, that's a great call. One, to even add a little more onto that, not only increasing players' choices as the games go along, but decreasing the amount of knowledge they have could be a nice trick as well. So something we did in Salvation Road is we had these apocalypse cards that came out every turn. Well, part of the strategy of the game is knowing, oh, we've already had a couple famine cards. We don't need to worry about food as much. But we didn't tell people that at the beginning of the game. We were hoping they would figure it out as they went (laughs) along. And so hoping they would (laughs) right. So you're not giving players enough information at the beginning of the game. So that's how we made an intro scenario that we posted online. But, you know, it's too late after somebody's already got the box. They played it again. A lot of times people don't want to go back in difficulty. But if that first scenario we played with those cards open right from the beginning of the game, it's like, okay, this is going to hit you at the end of the turn. You can prepare for it now. And so I was doing the same thing. We were doing a a playtest the other night of a prototype we have of a game coming out. And players said, you know what? I'm fighting the boss, but I don't really know what the boss is. So I don't know if I want to attack it or not. Just that little choice. It's like, oh, yeah, we can make that information open for the first game and then close it up later on after you've gotten past that first game. So I think it's important if you have closed information that you want to surprise players with. Maybe don't do it on their first play experience because they might view it as unfair. And so the more information you can give them to make better choices with from the beginning, and then as they played more, now they know those cards better, now you can start hiding that information from them a little more. I find it very interesting that you said that people do not like to go down in difficulty. Once they've started at a certain difficulty level, they don't want to lower it. And I think that's also something that we need to think about as we approach games, right? You don't want to make someone feel bad about themselves. You don't want to insult their pride. You have to start people at a point where they feel respected and capable, but also not blindsided by the difficulty of the game. And I think that that's a really delicate thing. Yeah. I mean, thinking back to video games, right? Um, There's Wolfenstein, bring it on. And then there's like, don't hurt me, going down to, oh, can I play, daddy? And I think that that makes it hard for people who just want to go blast a bunch of Nazis and feel really ultra-powerful, actually feel bad about that choice. And that's something that we should also be thinking about when we think about analog gaming, because you you don't want people to feel condescended to, but you also don't want them to feel punished by a game. Yeah. Because a lot of your pride goes into that when you play, especially if it's a tactical game where picking the right card combination makes you feel smart or not smart, depending on how you did. Yeah, and I think I think it actually comes into graphic design to an extent. I'm thinking of, if you all remember Forbidden Island, you have this little, like, I'm making a gesture, which no one listening can see. <laughs> you have this uh, this tracker of the, the water level and how quickly the water is rising. And at the bottom is the easiest difficulty setting. And you have to make a choice to slide the tracker past that easy, easiest difficulty setting. You're saying, I'm better than easiest. I'm going to try a harder game. And I think if you let a player do that, let them feel like they made a choice to go harder. Not like they started hard and you have to go be a wuss and go be easy. You made a choice to go harder. If they get their butt kicked that first game, they will feel totally okay going back down to easy because they made that choice. They knew they were making an assumption about how well they do in the game. And now they can reverse that assumption and play well. But if you make the mistake that we did in Salvation Road and start them at hard... They have to make a choice to go down to easy. It's a totally different kind of flip of the switch. And yeah, same thing with video games. Like a lot of video games, when you open up the game, the cursor will start on easy or normal. And you have to make a choice to go down to hard or insane or whatever. But if a game started on insane and I had to go up like four clicks to the easiest level, I would feel like an idiot and a loser if I had to do so to actually progress in the game. So yeah, such a meaningful thing to start in some graphic design way, in some suggestion in the rulebook, start at the basic, most basic level there is and let players make a choice of where they want to be and realize that it is their choice. I think that makes a big difference. 
One, the other thing about Forbidden Island, the nice part is it's very easy to see where you're making that choice and where it's making it easier and harder as well. Whereas some games you have to dial 10 different things to change the difficulty. With that one, it's real easy. Okay, you're starting by drawing more cards each turn or you're quickly progressing to drawing more cards each turn. So a choice that the players understand right from the beginning as well. Mm-hmm. It's also interesting how delicate that balance can be. I mean, I'm a solo gamer. So one of my earlier solo gateway games was, of course, Friday. And Friday starts on easy, like air quotes. <laughs> yeah. Because it's a really difficult game. It is. But it's also amazing how much harder that game is just by adding one extra negative effect right. card to your starting deck. It is incredible how much harder the game gets just from adding one card. So there's also a lot of fine-tuning in difficulty that can be very surprising. I mean, sometimes the smallest thing can really make a huge difference to how easy or hard a game feels. It doesn't have to be a big dramatic thing necessarily. Yeah, no, absolutely. And there's my yeah, no again for people who listened to the outtakes last week. (laughs) (laughs) All right. uh, Any final thoughts on difficulty in board games overall? I think we've covered a lot of ground here. For me, the the importance of discussing difficulty in board games is making sure that we're prioritizing having a good time when we play. Yeah. And making sure that games feel satisfying as experiences that we have, that we, you know, that we give up our spare time to have. Well, it's not giving up, right? It's, it's, I, I willingly give my spare time to my games, but I want my time back as an, as an investment. And I want to feel like I, I spent it well. And the difficulty level of my games directly impacts that. Absolutely. With video games uh, like Dark Souls you brought up, people now know Dark Souls. It has such a large like kind of zeitgeist in the video game community. Somebody can say they have a Dark Souls-style game or a game at the level of Dark Souls, and certain gamers will gravitate to that game knowing what experience they're in for. I don't think we have anything like that in board games. Probably the only one I can think of is several years back, Ghost Stories would be used as like the kind of prototypical, really hard co-op game. But I can't think of anything like that recently that people would go to kind of as their one for an example, which means that people are going to go into games kind of blind. They won't be able to hear, this game is like that game, it's super hard, be prepared for that. So I think we should kind of edge towards easier and just have those dials ready. Well, and another thing is, for the unlock games, they have a difficult rating on the back of the game. So maybe that is something you could put in. Like, this is a a lower level co-op, you know, on the lines of something like Castle Panic. Or, you know, you could go up to a medium level, something like Pandemic. Then you could go to something hard like The Grizzled, which don't expect to win, or This War of Mine. Uh, the Grizz- oh, God, This War of Mine. <laughs> Actually, there you go. That, that's the one I'll say. If anyone's like, how hard is this? I'll be like, it's easier than This War of Mine. That's how hard it is. <laughs> Do you want to cry when you're done playing a game? Only if it's This War of Mine. Exactly. <laughs> All right, Liz, it's been awesome having you on the show. Can you give us your uh, your blog website one more time? Thank you so much for having me. Um, if you want to see more of what I have to say about solo gaming mostly, but sometimes co-op, you can find me at www.beyondsolitaire.net. I'm also on YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter, and BGG as Beyond Solitaire, so across the board. Any really cool recent content you've done, like any awesome blog uh, post people should go check out first? Um, I put up a review of Legacy of Dragonholt yesterday, and my most recent Let's Play that I put up was Cards of Cthulhu. Oh, cool. Well, I'm interested in both of those, so I'll check them out. That's great. And definitely check Liz out on YouTube as well, at Beyond Solitaire. Her YouTube videos and playthroughs are great. All right, Liz, well, thanks for joining us. And for everybody else out there, our MVPs, we will see you in two weeks when we review another great co-op game. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Co-OpCast. We'll be back in two weeks to review another cooperative board game. Until then, please review us on iTunes. And while you're there, check out Mindless Fate. They provide our bumper music. Also, if you like co-op games and why else would you be here, check out coopboardgames.com. They have some great cooperative board game material. If you want to contact us, feel free to follow us on Twitter at MVP Board Games or email us at mvpboardgames at gmail.com. Clap with the claps you hear, not with the claps you see, because it might be uh, on a delay. Okay. Right, Peter?
I don't know. I'll look off to the side. Whatever you're doing is working. So okay. here, I'm going to even put this down so you can't see me clapping. <laughs> yeah, there we go. There. All right. Ready for five claps. I'm ready. All right. Disturbing clapping out of the way. <laughs> Hopefully that's the most disturbing thing that happens tonight. I'm part of the cult now. Yes. The ritual is complete. Neverwinter Nights, same thing. And then Moonshade Isles, I've never even heard of. <laughs> what, that's not your favorite D&D location? I mean, oh man, I've, I've had so many exciting adventures in the Moonshade Isles. <laughs> <laughs> See, what our listeners will never know is that how long I paused because I was making sure I was reading that correctly. The others, I just came right off. But yeah, no, the listeners will never know how long that pause actually was as my brain was like, what is this place? Because I've played a few campaigns in that setting, like kind of in this general setting uh, vicinity. God, that was that was poorly stated. You want to do that again? No, no, it's fine. I, I like being stupid on the air. Yeah, and, well, you know, we could talk about this later. Well, we'll discuss this later. Never mind. So, Mike, <laughs> leave me in. <laughs> All right, uh, any final thoughts on difficulty in board games overall? I think we've covered a lot of ground here. I guess the silence is no. We have said it all. <laughs> Unless, Liz, did you want to jump in with something? Yeah, I can produce a final. I can produce any number of thoughts. <laughs> um. Happy 2018, everyone. Thanks so much for having me. Cheers.